those that are uh, friends with the Carters and uh, the Shorts, um, you know, we're sorry for their loss in the past week. There is a visitation on Tuesday evening in Carlisle, and the funeral will be uh, in Van Meter on Wednesday. So for, for more you know, details, you can talk to someone from the Short or the Carter family. Let's just, let's give thanks. Father, we come to your presence this morning and we're just thankful that you can be our refuge. You can be our strength in times of trouble. We thank you for the opportunity to be reminded of that truth, that you are fixed, you are steady, you are unchanging. And Lord, we just pray that you would be our only hope in this life. And Lord, we know that our lives are passing by. Lord, help us to use them for your kingdom. Help, them, help us to use them for eternal purposes. Father, we just thank you for the opportunity to worship you this It's in Jesus' name. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they are saved. Proverbs 18.10. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we come to worship you through the study of your word. We come to worship you through offering our songs of praise and thanksgiving, fellowship with other believers. We ask that you would speak to our hearts. I pray that you, Holy Spirit, would speak to each one here in a way that each of us needs to hear from you this morning. May we be open and receptive. May we understand that these are not the words of men, but these are the words of God. May we see them and hear them for what they truly are. I ask now, Father, that you would work powerfully in the lives of the young people and the coach that are trapped in a cave, that you would work miraculously to rescue them from their plight. It's desperate and... It doesn't look good, but we know that you are able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to your power, which works mightily within us. To you be praise and glory through Jesus Christ and the church. We pray for your comfort and for your peace to rest on the shorts and the carters and their families. I pray that you would work to bring healing to, uh, to Rich. I pray for uh, Jim and Nancy's daughter, that you would bring healing and strength to her. God, I pray for those in our church family, Deb and Alfonso and uh, Mark Arts and, and others, Father, who have experienced severe damage from the the flooding, I pray that your spirit would comfort them and encourage them, that 
we might continue to be the hands and feet of Jesus to help them and support them in whatever way we can. Open now our eyes, as the psalmist prayed, that we might behold wonderful truths from your law, that we might not just gain information, Lord, but that you would use it to change us and conform us to the image of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. According to Desiree News, Dennis Albaugh is the wealthiest person in the state of Iowa. Many of you might not recognize his name, but if you've driven on the interstate north of Ankeny on I-35, you've seen a glimpse of his palatial estate that's located there on the west side of the road on his own private golf course. I was informed I didn't know this. This is a picture of his home. What you see from the interstate is not his home, but simply a clubhouse, a place where people stay so they can golf. His life is a transient portrait and shows the transient and the, por uh, the portrait and the prizes of faith in man. As we continue our study in Psalms, we turn now to Psalm 16, where by contrast, we see from the life of David the not transient portrait, but the transcendent portrait and prizes of faith in God. Because here it is, David laying out for himself and for us the, this great conviction that he has that God is, is worthy of his trust. And this messianic psalm from David's pen shares for us his deep faith in God where he lays out and shows that God is our portion in this life and our preservation in death. As we look at this psalm, David shares from his own experience and everything basically in the psalm is, has a direct inference and implication and application to David's life except perhaps verse 10, which we're going to get to as I read the text, and we know from Peter's testimony in Acts chapter 2 and Paul's testimony in Acts chapter 13 that David spake, spoke prophetically, whether he knew it intentionally or not, of the resurrection of Jesus in Psalm 16.10. It's my conviction that David spoke initially and historically of his own conviction that he would escape death and enjoy the presence of God forever. But he also spoke prophetically and ultimately of the work of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, which provides salvation for all who would believe. His, his words, the words of David, words of, I mean, just profound conviction, his trust in God, instruct us and they inspire us to exercise greater trust so we can enjoy the treasures of such trust. This morning, I'm in Psalm 16. I invite you to turn in your Bibles because in this psalm, I've kind of broken it down this way. There are two statements, two explicit statements of his tenacious trust in God that uh, I think reveal to us, expose broad benefits of belief. 
And I'm going to mention the broad benefits, and then we're going to tease out how his trust in God leads us to understand and embrace those benefits. And so I'm going to read the text, Psalm 16, beginning with verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another god will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their libations of blood, nor shall I take their names upon my lips. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You do support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved, psalmist says. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices and my flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, neither will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. First of all, in the text, it seems to me that in verses 1 through 7, David lays out for us and makes a case that deep faith, and through deep faith, we enjoy greater contentment greater contentment with God in the fray of life. And all that's happening to us, trust leads to greater contentment. And there's two considerations. The same way will, they'll be laid out as we look at verses 8 through 11. But first of all, the declaration of faith or the proof of faith. His bold declaration comes in verses 1 and 2. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. Several statements here that lead to one big overarching commitment, conviction that he's trusting God with all of who he is. Why would he ask God to preserve him if there wasn't some sense in which he was feeling a little bit vulnerable? He wants safety in God. And why does he look to God? He says, for I take refuge in you. I think last Saturday night there were several of us who were Praying this prayer, maybe not consciously, preserve me, O God, or at least preserve my stuff. We live on North Walnut Creek, and the creek was supposed to rise five feet above, above flood stage, and I'm pretty sure it did. If you go down Hickman Road, you see a walking bridge just on the other side of Hickman Road, on the north side of Hickman Road, and the creek was above that bridge. Okay, not above the Hickman Road Bridge, but above that bridge. It was uh, plenty high, and we're praying, Preserve me, O God. Why? For I take refuge in you. This word, take refuge, from historically, the Old Testament, they, they, they would take refuge in a cave. They would take refuge under the rocks. They would take refuge in a tree. I don't know if you knew this, but uh, Mom and Pop Panda Bear uh, leave their babies up in high up in the trees when they go foraging for their food because that's the safest place for their babies is high in the tree 
They're safe there. They take refuge there. I take refuge in you. I want to know this morning, those of you who are here and you, you name the name of Jesus, we, we claim that He's our Savior, do we take refuge in God? Is God our refuge when our friends alienate us because we don't go along with their illegal or their immoral or their unethical activity? Is God our refuge when our finances evaporate. Some of you had money invested in the stock market in 2008, and you saw your portfolio go from what it was to a third of what it was. Some of you owned homes at that time, and you saw your home values go from what they were to a third of what they were. Not so much in central Iowa, but on the east coast and the west coast and in Florida, that happened. So when our friends alienate us, and when our finances evaporate from us, when our health deteriorates, when our wife or our husband excoriates, uh, when our flood waters inundate, is God our refuge? Or do we say, well, I just got to work harder. I got to trust in myself. I'm just going to trust my intelligence. Or I'm going to flee to social media and just check out. I'm going to check out Facebook or Twitter or check my Snapchat or Instagram feed and see what's happening to just forget about life. My great-grandparents had what they called the cellar. It was a man-made cave out on the farm. It was a place before the days of refrigeration when you would take your canned food and your canned meat and your goods and you would put them in this cave that kept it at a constant 52 degrees. But it was also a storm shelter. So, those of you who've seen The Wizard of Oz, as Dorothy was making her way to the cellar, she didn't quite make it. At least in her dream, she didn't make it. That's a place of refuge. And I wonder, is God my refuge? Or do I trust in my intelligence? Or I trust in my efforts and my abilities and my working harder just to make it through? Then he says, I said to the Lord, interesting in verse 2, I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. And I'm kind of going, well, what's that about? You just called him Lord, so why are you calling him Lord again? In the Hebrew, there are many, 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 many words for God. In the first use of the word Lord is Yahweh, the life-giving true God. I am who I am, the self-existent one, as Moses said in Exodus 3.14. I said to the self-existent one, you are my Adonai. You are my ruler. You are my master. You are my owner. You know, uh, that he was sold out for God. 
There was no other possession. There was no other pursuit. There was no other passion. There was no other person of greater importance to David than God. You are my God. It's not a house. Not making the first team or the first chair or you fill in the blank. Winning a state title or a state championship or getting a country club membership or gaining a promotion. No. You are my master. That's what's most important to me. You know, it makes me think of that song, and I'm twisting it a little bit. I own no other master. My heart shall be your home. My life I give henceforth to live for you, O God, alone. I read this and I go, okay, so Steve, what rules your heart? What owns me? Is it acceptance that owns me? Is it approval? Is it affluence? Applause? You remember, you hear that Christian song, that gal that's singing, I don't uh, need my name in lights. I'm precious in my Father's eyes. What do we need? God is His Lord, His Master, His Ruler. Then it gets even more convicting. He says at the end of verse 2, I have no good besides you. Really? I mean, chew on that one for a while. I have no good besides you. You are of the greatest value of anything that I have. He says, there's nothing more valuable, nothing more fulfilling, nothing more satisfying than my relationship with you. Some of you have sang that, sung that song, sang that song, sung that song. The greatest thing in all my life is knowing you. Really. Is it? It's not always for me. I know that in my heart. I wish it was true. David is saying that everything and everyone else pales in comparison to his relationship with the living God. I, for one, am in the camp with my professor from seminary, Dr. Larry Crabb, who said, I know that God is all I need. I just don't know him well enough for him to be all that I want. I want to know him well enough for him to be all that I want. I think. Someone once said to Elizabeth Elliot, Oh, Miss Elliot, I want to know God like you know God. And she said, I don't think you want to go through the pain that I've gone to through. She, she, three husbands. She lost three husbands. I don't think you want to go through the pain that I've gone to, through to know God like I know God. But David said, 
I know God. Psalm 20, 73, verse 25, which is one of the most beautiful psalms in all the psalmists, is, is one we're going to come to, where he says, Whom have I in heaven but you, and there's nothing I desire on earth besides you? That was David's heart. I want my relationship with God to be intimate enough so that I can say that there's no good besides you and there's nothing on earth I desire that supersedes you. How does that happen? I don't know for sure, but a couple of suggestions. Number one is to abandon what it is that rivals God in my life. And one of the best ways I think we can do is just to, to ask God to show us. You see, you think about David. I mean, his life was, was painful. And it was his painful life that led to this precious condition of his heart. I mean, here's the guy. What? He, he was shepherd and killed a lion and a bear. And then, that's no big deal, he took on Goliath. Took that dude out. And then he led the armies of Israel into battle several times. And one of those times he was coming back celebrating and praising God and dancing before the Lord. And then his wife said, you're a, an embarrassment to me. You know, so Michael disowned him, you know, basically. She ended up saving his skin, but that, you know, it's just like an embarrassment. Then he was anointed as king of Israel. And, and while after he was anointed, then he was assaulted by Saul. And then he ran and he, he hid, took refuge in the rocks and the caves like some sort of a criminal. And then he pursued his perverse passions with Bathsheba and later his own son Absalom betrayed him. It is the pain of David's life and the joys of David's life and all of David's life that led him to realize that God is all I've got, ultimately. He's the one. He's abandoned these idols. Sometimes God strips them away. A knee injury as a junior in high school took my passion for sports and turned it somewhere else to some degree painful breakup with the woman that I thought I was going to marry. A scholarship, an academic scholarship that I had worked really, really hard to gain was denied. A few investments that uh, went way south of the border all brought tears of sadness. As I realized what I was looking to and my definition of success and satisfaction was completely out of my control. You see, God has a way of taking that which we elevate beyond Him and above Him and taking it from us so that we are pointed to Him. He alone is David's satisfaction and wants to be ours as well. And then we must adopt a kingdom mindset to see every circumstance as an opportunity to get to know God better rather than to become bitter. I remember standing in 
a parking lot in, in Budapest, Hungary, with a couple that we knew from Romania who had met us there, and we were to go out and going out together with them, and we had been left behind by the team, and they were the only people that we actually knew, and they had locked their keys in their car. And the wife, bless her heart, it's a test. It's a test. I'm thinking, yeah, you're right, it's a test. And I'm testy. And God answered our prayers and got us into the car. It's a test. Life is a test. God will use every circumstance in our life and it will either drive us away from Him or it will draw us near to Him. So we recognize his sufficiency. I, I, I love the words of Viktor Frankl, who was a Holocaust survivor. I can't remember. Maybe I've already used him for you, with you before. But he said this. He says, everything can be taken from a man except the last of human freedoms, the ability to choose our attitude in any given set of circumstances. So what is my attitude? Is this a God thing or not a good thing? Then there's this description of faith in, in verses 3 through 7. The proof of our faith is seen in verses 3 and 4. David manifests this faith that he has declared in his delight in the saints and his disdain for the wicked people, the sinners. You see in verse, verses 3 and 4, verse 3, he, just, he loves the saints. He says, I love you. I'm, you know, the holy ones, the majestic ones. This is what has been happening in our congregation as people have been over at, at Bev's, you know, helping her out with the stuff and helping with other people who've suffered from all of the tragedy from last weekend. That's a evidence that we love the saints. But then he goes on and he says, but you know, these people who barter for another God, their sorrows will multiply. What he's saying is that those who pursue idolatry will reap the benefits or the non-benefits of their idolatry and he will not even participate in their worship and he will not pronounce their names and i read that and i go wow that's not very seeker friendly i think what he's saying is not that this is a separation issue it's not that he doesn't love these people or have a heart for these people but he's not going to participate in pagan worship and he's not going to elevate them not going to support them not going to promote it but he's going to love them and and seek to reach them if that would be our context that's what we would do we don't have to endorse it but we reach out to them and then he moves to the prizes of his faith there's the proclamation of his faith in verses 1 and 2 and there's the proof of it in verses 3 and 4 and then there are the prizes that lead me to say that it is our contentment with God in the fray of life that is increased when we are trusting in him verse 5 the lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup see god's our inheritance if we're a believer you're thinking, well, you know, I'm thinking I could, well, can I do better than that? You know, God is our inheritance. And he says, portion the cup. These are phrases and terms used in the Old Testament that specifically refer to the allocation of the land that the Israelites came into. And certain tribes got certain geographical regions. Okay. And so David is basically saying, if you know the Old Testament, you know that the priests and the Levites, they didn't get any land. <laughs> they got the Lord. And David says, I'm one of them. What I get is God. And guess what? I get the good. 
stuff. I get the best. I get God. My portion and cup are metaphors for God's gracious provision. God himself. And God is not just a gift, but notice the end of verse 5. You do support my lot. That's the New American Standard. God is his guarantee. God keeps on giving. God takes care of him. God is the one that sustains him. Not just that he has this nice inheritance, but God continues with him all the way through. He's his guarantee. Ongoing provision. God satisfies him in relationship with himself. That God is enough. I think of my, my brother Ken. He flew to Haiti in his own plane in 2010 after the earthquake. He landed on a remote airport runway, parked his plane, and he got out on a Sunday. And what did he hear? Well, he didn't understand a word of it, but he knew the melody. The Haitian people singing in Creole, How Great Thou Art. God, in their poverty, was their portion. He's enough for them. David said, He is my portion and cup. He is the prize that I get. He considered in verse 6, he says, The lions have fallen to me in pleasant places. Remember the story in the Old Testament where Abraham and Lot, they just got too much stuff and so they, they can't live together and so they have to separate ways. And Abraham, who is the old guy, and Lot, his nephew, he says, Okay, Lot, you just look out here and you just decide where you want to go. I'd like to have that option, wouldn't you? I'm thinking, Abraham, you are stupid. Why give this young whippersnapper the best shot at it? You know? Didn't turn out too good for Lot, uh, as we all know, but uh, picked Sodom and Gomorrah. But here David says, the lines have fallen. I'm so tickled pink with my inheritance. I am pleased as punch that this is the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. It doesn't have to be beautiful to you, but it's beautiful to me. I brought this this morning. Uh, no, this is not a sermon on Exodus 32, uh, where uh, Aaron threw all their, uh, said, well, I just threw their earrings in and out came a golden calf. No. This is part of my beautiful heritage. This golden horse, which is not gold at all. I mean, it's like brass or something, you know used to sit on my grandfather's end table. And my grandma gave it to me as his only grandson. It doesn't mean anything to you, but it's beautiful to me. Now, it's not quite so beautiful because one of my kid's friends has laid down and stepped on it and broke the legs off, you know. So in horse days, you would shoot the horse because uh, its legs were broken, you know, and it was, it was worthless. Uh, we glued them back, okay? Because it, it, was, it was precious to me. David said, God is precious to me. He's my portion and he's my cup. God is not only our inheritance, but he's our instructor. Look at verse 7. He says in verse 7, I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. 
You know what's really interesting is people who walk with the Lord, I hear stories after stories after stories, that, that, you know, not just about the fact that the Lord counsels us and gives us direction and clarity and uh, instruction, and this is the way, walk you in it. I wouldn't be here if I didn't feel like the Lord was giving counsel and guidance and instruction. But sometimes in the night, people wake up. I just felt this burden. I had to get up and pray for so-and-so. And then you find out that so-and-so was thousands of miles away, and at that very moment, at that very time, they were going through a struggle and a hardship, and somebody prayed for them because God was counseling and instructing in the night. What a blessed inheritance and a prize for those who trust and who have faith in God. God is our instructor. Trust in God leads us deeper into contentment because He is our portion. He is our inheritance. He is a pleasant inheritance. But also, we see in verses 8 through 11 that deeper faith allows us to enjoy greater confidence in God in the face of death. Not only in the fray of life, but in the face of death. Again, we have this proclamation, the declaration of faith in verse 8. And I'm going to read verse 8. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. I have set the Lord. Deep faith keeps its gaze continually on God. I don't know about you, but I struggle there. It's like, I can't say this all the time, that I that God is continually before me. But He deliberately, it's a choice. He set God continually. That means repeatedly. That's helpful for me because, you know, it's like, okay, I, I must continually do this. It's something I have to keep working at, and not in my own flesh, but the Spirit of God working in me enables me to keep reminding myself to focus on God. He's there. To focus on God's presence. To focus on God's provision. He's just talked about that. To focus on God's preeminence. We took our children to uh, Disney World one time. I don't plan on going again. Uh, but went once and uh, went, sorry kids, I'm not, you know, uh, your parents may be a better parent than me and they want to go there, but I, anyhow, maybe later. I'm not going to say never. I never say never because if you ever say never, then God always, wow, you're, you're in trouble. But we went to Epcot and we went to, I, I got on this fast track thing. I'm, I'm kind of like an adrenaline junkie. So like if there's a roller coaster, I want to go six times. Mission Space, I went about five times on Mission Space, you know, and my family's all over there looking like they're white as a sheet and like they're going to lose their cookies, you know, and I'm like, oh, let's go again. Let's go again. Let's go again. You know, it's kind of a blind roller coaster mission space. And so we went on, uh, on fast track, and so the, or uh, test track is what's called, test track. So you, you, you're simulating a test run as a car driver through a test track, and there's all kinds of obstacles and all kinds of stuff that they throw at you. And man, I, was, I had the, the road continually before me. I mean, I'm like, all, all things are on, on high alert, you know. Because they're throwing tires at you, and there's a car runs in front of you. You got to slam on the brakes. You got to turn the wheel. It's just crazy. David says, "I keep the Lord always before my face, conscious of His presence, conscious of His power." conscious of his provision. Why? Because it affects my life. I'm telling you, when I kept the fast track track in front of me or the test track track in front of me, it affected the way I was responding. 
if I lose sight of God, if I don't have him out there in front of me, you know, life just kind of goes on. I just kind of do things my way, you know, as the old song says. It's not right. Then notice he says, which is kind of a, a shift. I have kept the Lord always before me. And then he says, because he's at my right hand, I'm thinking, wait a second, is he before you or beside you? Well, interestingly enough, if you read Psalm 139, verse 5, he's also behind you. As one of my brothers says, Jesus be the fence. You know, he's the fence. He's all the way around. I kept the Lord before me because he's at my right hand, because he's behind me, he's all around me. And the right hand in the Hebrew is the position of power. I stood with my father at the front door of Marty McCoy's home. And my dad was on my right-hand side as we confronted Marty's dad because Marty's bigger brother had just slugged me in the gut and put me in a world of hurt. And because the Lord was at my right hand, I was cool as a cucumber. I mean, he says, I shall not be shaken. Folks, when God is at our right hand in the position of power that he ought to be, then we can't be shaken. There is nothing that can happen that God is not going to take care of and, and be in control. That was his hope. That was his conviction. And that was his experience. And how much more powerful is our heavenly father than my earthly father? Then he describes his faith. If you look at verse 9, the proof of the faith, the proof that he was unshaken is in his response. Verse 9, therefore, pointing us back. Therefore, what's it there for? It points us back to his provision, to his presence, and to his protection. Protection, verse 1, his provision, verse 5, and his presence, verse 8. He's there. So I can rest in the fact that God is there. The proof of his faith is that he had joy. I'm telling you what, when I'm standing at Marty McCoy's door, I was kind of rejoicing. Because my dad's telling his dad, if we have a problem again, then his dad's going to answer to my dad. My dad's a big dude. And I'm thinking, we got this. David says, we got this. We've got this. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my tongue rejoices, and my flesh also dwells securely. Here's the kicker. The therefore points us back, but it also points us forward. It's not just what he had experienced, but what he expected that resulted in his joy. And that's verse 10. And David says, you will not allow your Holy One, or you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. You will not allow your Holy One to undergo, undergo decay. David, I believe, well, there's, you know, there's a few things going on here. First of all, uh, he said death would not sever our relationship with God. He, he didn't believe death would sever his relationship with God. And there are three aspects of this I want to mention. First of all, there's David's expectation. I believe the text applies first and foremost to David. I believe it's a testimony of his great conviction that the God who had been his provision, the God who was his good, the God who had been his portion would preserve him, that he would experience victory over death. 
I think he thought that. And that one day, if you read verse 11, he would know the fullness of joy and the pleasures of being in the presence of God forever. But then, there is Christ's experience in this text. Because we can't ignore the fact that Peter and Paul both said of this text, it applies to Jesus. He rose from the dead. In fact, David never did rise from the dead yet. Okay? So we know it wasn't his experience. It hasn't been it yet. But it was Jesus' experience who rose from the dead. And that's what Paul says in Acts chapter 13, verses 35 through 38. And that's what Peter said in Acts chapter 2. Okay? Verses 25 and, and 27, I think it is. Uh, and he would. But it's also, it's also, it's not just Jesus. And because Jesus rose from the dead, that gives us hope that we will rise from the dead, which is the final emphasis is our eternal hope. Christ's resurrection proves that there is victory over sin and death. And folks, a flood is an experience of a fallen world. Okay. Sheetrock that acts like a sponge is part of a fallen world. The nasty, stinky smell of you know, water that sits for a long time is part of the fall. And he says, look, we have victory over sin and death and all of its consequences through the person of Jesus. Jesus himself said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Well, how could he say that? Because he never died. He rose from the dead. He conquered sin and death. And that is true for all who believe. Or do you not know? Well, all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the God the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing that the old self has been crucified, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Folks, you know, that, that's the hope we can live with. That's the hope we share with a lost and dying world. There is nothing that's going to separate us. Death will not sever our relationship with our Direction will be given to us. This is verse 11. Thou will make known to me, you will make known to me the path of life. Now, I think... This means not just the path of eternal life, which is true. I just mentioned that, that the life comes through Jesus. Real eternal salvation through faith, trust in Jesus. We gain eternal life. But this is abundant life now. This is eternal life now. Eternal life doesn't begin at the end of this earthly existence for believers. It begins the moment we trust Christ. And he says, I'm going to give it to you. This is John 10.10. 10. I came that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to be hunky-dory fun, fun all the time. But it's an abundant, rich life because God is with us in it. And then there's deeper joy that awaits us in our relationship with God. That's the end of verse 16. In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's for now, yes. But it's also for later. 
Actually, the fullness of joy and everything is more now. How many of you like apples? Come on, be truthful with me. Okay, now what's your favorite kind of apple? Who likes Braeburns? Uh, what's the, give me some other ones. Honeycrisp. Yeah, I like the people like Honeycrisp. I do not like red delicious apples because they are anything but delicious. They're red. And they taste like cordwood, you know. Now, so you like an apple, right? So you, you, you taste an apple. It's juicy. It mouthwaters. The sugars in it bring out your taste buds to dance. And it's wonderful. Good, 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 good. Because that's what it's like here. But in heaven, we're having apple pie with ice cream. That's the fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. And David said, that's what I'm looking for. So, deep faith, I see from David's life, comes from a deeper understanding of who God is. It is something that gives us greater contentment in the fray of life. It's something that gives us greater confidence in the face of death. And you know, some of you may be here this morning and you're thinking, yeah, I don't know. It's sure easy for David to say that. I don't even know about this Jesus guy. I don't really know about whether we should trust in what he says. I would say to you, folks, the fact that David prophesied in Psalm chapter 16 about a thousand years before this dude Jesus ever lived, that this dude Jesus would rise from the dead, and Jesus did rise from the dead, should give you pause to at least consider that the God who put this stuff in this book is not messing around, and that the person of Jesus who did rise from the dead has a claim on your life, and that you would surrender. And so I would see for all of us that we would either, one, initiate this trust relationship with God that we would want to deepen, that we would recognize that we're a sinful, fallen person deserving of God's judgment, but that God in His mercy sent His Son Jesus, and He died for our sins, so that if we by faith would trust in His death as the payment we deserve, we could have life. And we could know this fullness of joy one day. We could taste that joy now because all the best of earth is just a taste. Just a taste of what God has for us. And then those of us who know Jesus, you know, if you haven't trusted Christ, you can do that. I would invite you to cry out to God and put your trust in Him. Those of us who know Jesus, my prayer for us is that we would seek to intensify that trust. We just ask God, Lord, show me. Where is it that I'm, I'm setting up these idols, these rivals to you as my only good? What are those things in my life? What are, who are the people? Who are the places? What are the possessions, ambitions, pursuits that, that I make more of a deal than you? Please strip them from me. Show me how to release them. Ask God to help me to view every circumstance as an opportunity to get to know Him better and love Him more. And finally, ask God to help us to get to know Him well enough for Him to be all that we want. And one of the, one of the best ways that we at Creekside can help uh, intensify our trust is by reminding us of how trustworthy this God we serve is. And one of the ways that we help remind ourselves of how trustworthy he is is by partaking of the elements of communion. 
Because as we break this bread and as we take this cup, we remember that this Christ whom David said would rise from the dead did indeed die. His body was broken, symbolized by the bread, and his blood was shed, symbolized by the cup. And he rose again with victory over sin and death so that all who believe could enjoy that victory as well. And if you're here this morning and you enjoy that victory, then wow, he's, he's deserving of our trust because of his great love for us. All who believe can conquer sin and death as well. And so this is open to anyone who's trusting in Christ. I invite you to come as you feel led and directed to take of the elements and then go back to your seat and join in the singing. So as our praise team comes and as I pray, search your heart and ask God to reveal to you, Lord, okay, what are these things that I need to set aside and do business with God and confess your sin and get right in your heart so that you take these elements in a worthy manner? Let's pray. Father, uh, give us grace. By your grace, we pray that, you know, Lord, we can't just gin up the effort to trust you more. I pray that your spirit would work in our hearts and that we would take steps of faith that strengthen our dependence on you, that make us realize that you are worthy of all of our trust. As we take these elements, as we turn our hearts to this remembrance of what you've done, I pray that it would solidify and strengthen our trust in a God who, who does bring us contentment, greater contentment in the fray of life and greater confidence in the face of death. In Christ's name. Thank you.